Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you have a strong disruptive idea, you can take it to anyone in the world. You just have to dare asking. You know, the first time I contacted with, with the World Bank, I, I didn't even know who to get in touch with. But then very quickly you realize that if you have a good idea, you can get a meeting with the president of USA. If your idea is fantastic, he's going to listen to you. So, you know, that is a, a one of the lessons of power. You know, don't, don't get into your own way. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Climate change. The evidence is all around us, but it feels like organizations, countries, and most people are failing to do much to address it. Enter today's guest, Grisha Safarian, impact investor, entrepreneur, a man on a very intense mission. Grisha went from a small prototype, fermenting cacao in acacia wooden boxes in a village in the south of Vietnam, to a proposal of a $4.5 billion green bond to the World Bank, helping to reinvent a troublesome supply chain. How did he do it? What has increased his influence and impact? It's my pleasure to speak to Grisha Safarian today, Managing Director of Paratos Grand Place Indochina, founder of Cacao Trace, ultra-marathoner, and massive fan of the Rolling Stones. Grisha has been a leader in the cocoa and chocolate supply world since 1988, built the first tree-to-bar supply chain in Vietnam in 1993, and in the past five years has dramatically scaled that model, taking it worldwide. If you're intrigued by chocolate, wonder how someone can innovate within a large multinational, or puzzled about how to build sustainable business practices in an entrenched industry, then listen in. Grisha. Welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you, Michael. My uh, honor and pleasure to be invited to this fantastic podcast. I'm really, really happy to be here. How did you get into chocolate and why should we care about the chocolate supply chain? Okay, so my first, um, my first entry into the chocolate sector was um, half a century ago, actually. 
Uh, I was five years old and uh, I was living in a remote village in Belgium, surrounded by cows. So I had this idea that I proposed to my mother when I, I distinctly remember that moment. I wanted to feed the cows with chocolate so that every morning we could get immediately fresh hot chocolate directly from the cows. That was my first shot at innovating and disrupting the chocolate industry. Unfortunately, it was killed uh, immediately by my mother, who did not allow me to try to feed cows with chocolate. But I, I remember this as my first, you know, my first contact with this industry. And amazingly, you know, decades later, I entered right after my uh, university. I studied political science, so there's not much, uh, you know, relation. By chance, I met someone who gave me the passion, and I want to answer simply to your question. I, I came into the chocolate industry by passion. That is really the, the most simple answer. And why should we take care of this industry, and why should we have a, a, a close look at it? Because first of all, chocolate is passion. I don't remember meeting anyone who doesn't like chocolate. It's, it's a dream product. And behind this dream product, you have one of the most terrible supply chain in the world, which creates non-intentionally, I mean, this is, a, this is a heritage from a historical situation, but cocoa farmers are totally underpaid. The development of plantation is creating a lot of deforestation. I think 70% of the uh, Ivory Coast tropical forests have, have disappeared in favor of cocoa plantation. And there is a, there is a there are issue of child labor. So you have an overall situation which is no longer acceptable in 2022, but is widely accepted and not put into question. Yeah, and it's... Most of us don't even think about where chocolate comes when we pick it up on the, the retail shelf, particularly in the West. So deforestation, child labor, troublesome supply chains, the cacao tray sourcing model, sustainable practices you've pioneered there in Vietnam. Can you share how this has really taken off? Have there been some shifts in your approaches, maybe what it looked like kind of before, after? and they impact some of the things that you've done, have had? Yes, of course. So I wouldn't say that I've been innovating in this supply chain uh, since the 1980s or, or the 1990s. This is where I started to work in this industry. But there is a, a very long phase where I was just another player of the chocolate industry, not even understanding or realizing what was behind. The, I could say today that the chocolate industry, all the big names that we all know, built its wealth by keeping cocoa farmers, about 7 million of them around the world, in extreme poverty. You know, this is a bold, aggressive statement. You know I like to do that. But I defy any player, any big company in the chocolate industry to go against this statement. And the demonstration of this is that for the last 20 years, every single player of this industry has been making claims that they are going to solve the issue, and every year the issues are getting worse. I had some kind of 
you know, understanding of what was behind the supply chain. When I, when I grew older, when I started to, you know, question things, travel around, and I realized actually that this industry was lacking innovation and disruption for 100 years. And being in Vietnam since 1993, but it started especially around 2008, I started to get involved in the full supply chain, full vertical integration, getting to talk to the farmers in the Mekong Delta, getting to see how they live. And I realized that actually there were a lot of new things that could be done to create value into this supply chain. And you have mentioned the fermentation in Acacia wooden box. This is an innovation that we started in Vietnam in 2008, and that is creating flavor, new flavors, much better chocolate. So, of course, this chocolate is sold to the consumer at the end of the supply chain at a higher price. This is value creation. And then the next step was for us, with my team, to think, okay, we have created value. So are we going to put it in our pocket as shareholder or are we going to try to solve some of the problems of the supply chain by sharing the value? And it's a typical classical model that I, that I learned at Stanford actually in, in strategy. You create value first and then you share it among different stakeholders in order to correct, improve the supply chain. And the sharing of your value allow you to get a nice story that creates a marketing action and communication that increase your number of customers. And so you create a virtuous circle. And I did all this, you know, kind of naturally. I didn't have a plan. I was just studying at Stanford different course on strategy, on influence, together with you, by the way. And at the same time, I was applying all these concepts with my team to the prototyping we were doing in Vietnam. And we ended up creating what is today the most efficient cocoa sourcing program in the world because it is the only one that is creating value. And if we just fast forward a minute, this eventually led to the $4.5 billion green bond proposal. Can you connect the dots here? That's it just went really big. Actually, now it's six billion. Six billion. <laughs> what were the steps there that 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 went from this fermentation to to that? Yeah, I call it from from Bentre. Okay, Bentre is a small a small town in the Mekong Delta. Most of you have never heard of it, uh, but it's the center of our innovation center in Cocoa. And so we went from Bentre to Washington. This is, the, this is the title of a lecture that I made in the past. So what happened actually is that, you know, we are talking about power, we are talking about influence. So I have all these small slogans, the power of. So I, I talk about the power of asking, the power of content. And here I'm going to discuss a bit about the power of disruption. What happened is that we realized about 12 years ago, that we were sitting on a very strong innovation and disruption because we started, by analogy with the wine industry, we started to ferment cocoa beans in wooden boxes, which is something that was not done yet by the industry. 
then we realize about the value creation and the possibility of putting more value in the supply chain and sharing it with what, what, what we call the 2F, forest and farmers. So we decided to increase the price paid to the farmers with, uh, when we were purchasing cocoa. And we decided to use part of the value creation to plant trees, to do reforestation action, not only in Vietnam, by the way. And so all this led us to a, a mini, a small prototype that was a virtuous circle that we felt was solving a lot of problems of the supply chain. So the next point was to say, okay, how can we upscale this? And uh, I had two steps in the upscaling. First of all, I, was, I started to look for a strategic partner who had a much bigger size than, than I had in Vietnam. So that's how I ended up in a joint venture with Puratos Group. And then we started to connect with different international organizations, IFC, the World Bank. My team wrote a white paper on the cocoa supply chain based on our prototype in Vietnam. And we ended up having a, a fantastic document of 10 pages, which was upscaling what we were doing in Vietnam at the level of the global cocoa supply chain. So in Vietnam, we are dealing with 2,000 tons of beans per year. The global supply chain is 4 million tons of beans per year. So we wondered, okay, how can we create, duplicate this virtuous circle that we have in Vietnam at the level of the world? I mean, starting with a few more countries, of course, you don't go directly there. And we ended up propose, uh, setting up a white paper with a plan that involved the World Bank for financing government, IFC, which is the private branch of the World Bank to finance companies, and a green bond of five to six billion dollars that would inject into cocoa producing countries the money needed to create, to apply this innovation that we were applying in Vietnam. And the impact of this green bond utilization was a huge value creation. Uh, the hiring of tens, hundreds of thousands of people to do a new type of job in the supply chain, farmers income increase and reforestation. That happened exactly in April. Uh, I, was, I was supposed to be in Washington to present this to the head of the, the World Bank in, um, in uh, 2020. And of course, everything was delayed because of COVID. But the summary of what I just said is, for me, the power of disruption and the power of asking. If you have a strong disruptive idea, you can take it to anyone in the world. You just have to dare asking. You know, the first time I contacted with, with the World Bank, I, I didn't even know who to get in touch with. But then very quickly, you realize that if you have a good idea, you, 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 you can get a meeting with the president of USA. If your idea is fantastic, he's going to listen to you. So, you know, that is a, a one of the lessons of power. You know, don't, don't get into your own way. The power of asking. Yeah, and, and Grisha, how do you do that, right? You said you, don't, you didn't know who to go approach at the World Bank. You couldn't even go there because COVID was kicking in. What were the steps? Did you just start distributing this around? What did you do? How did you get that white paper in front of the right people? 
it's 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 a <clears throat> it's a succession of of connection you know i was i was looking for i was looking for financing you know style of uh, uh, public financing to put r and d money into our research of the prototype then i started to talk with ifc in singapore i realized that they were much more interested than i thought into our model because the cocoa supply chain problems are famous among international organizations and they are very eager for solutions. And I, I, I had with this white paper that was done by my team, by the way, it was not even written by me, it was written by my team, so, because I love to empower people. This white paper had a, had a very good content. And so this is what I call the power of content. We use the content to knock at doors. And then you knock at the first door, in Singapore, then they get interested. They connect you with some with the head of of IFC in in Vietnam, and then you fly to Hanoi to meet the guy. And then the next thing is we are talking about an, a meeting in in Washington to present the white paper. And this is, by the way, this is an ongoing story. Huh? It's not a success story yet, because for sure this kind of project is going to take at least ten years to be uh, to be implemented. There will be a lot of change and uh, a lot of convincing. So the power of content and the power of asking and, and following through on those connections, which a lot of people <laughs> that we talk about a lot don't do, right? So there's some persistence going on here. I want to talk about this in two levels. So you're persistent and your team is persistent on this one level of proposing that white paper. On the other hand, you are operating with a large multinational. The multinational you alluded to was Paratos, which is a, a Belgian uh, chocolatier. And inside or working with a large multinational, we, we, you know, a lot of the evidence shows that large companies, a lot of bureaucracy, hard to innovate. And I know that you being on the periphery, kind of in an emerging market, looking at the supply chains, wasn't initially immediately received by everyone. What were some of the things and strategies that you used to get kind of large company and the stakeholders on board? I was able to prototype in a country like Vietnam. So everything is possible in Vietnam. It's, a, it's an amazing country. People are amazing. So prototyping here, whatever you want, is uh, the perfect the perfect thing to do perfect location then i got into a joint venture with piratos which is by the way is not only active in chocolate they're also doing a, a bakery and pâtisserie so they are they are the number one supplier in the world of sourdough bread for example ingredients and i was able to catch the attention of the owner that was really uh, the trigger of the whole cacao trace upscaling. Uh, we went into a joint venture, and by chance, my passion for cocoa met with the owner of Pirato's passion for cocoa. We had the same passion. And so immediately we connected. Immediately we started to talk. I share my vision. I share all my crazy ideas. Uh, some of them being good, some of them being not that good. And, and, and a very strong bond immediately started. And that's how I was able 
to start the influencing work on this large organization from, from the very top. And I would say that this is probably, according to me, the only way to influence a large organization, because when you bring a disruption to a company, you are, you are going to create troubles for a lot of people at different layers of the, of the pyramid. Let's say, to take a very simple example, uh, Cacao Trace is a program that means we pay the farmers a higher price than the market. So the person in charge of purchasing cacao in the group, whose bonus depends on how, how cheap he buys the cocoa, is going to be upset with me. This guy hates me. He doesn't want to see cacao trees enter the organization. And so you see, there was a whole work of convincing from the owner, and then you go to the group executive committee. You show, you show to, to everybody the long-term the long-term benefits for the organization that are opposed to the short-term cost. And then from the group executive committee, you need to start convincing different groups, different layers of people. And this is a very hard, very stressful work because you meet a lot of opposition. And you should not care about the opposition. You have to stick to your ideas. If you get influenced by the opposition, you are going to drop the ideas after two weeks. So I had the green light, the go-ahead of the owner, but the full convincing of the organization took three to four years. And today, because this is 10 years later today, today the organization is totally convinced because now we are enjoying the long-term benefit. Everything that is labeled cacao trays is selling more at a higher price at, and, and grow faster. So of course, now everybody is convinced, you know, money is, money is convincing. Yeah, and you mentioned you had this support from, from the very top that was very intrigued by this idea, but lots of entrenched opposition. A lot of it, the way people's bonuses and incentives are, are structured, and that convincing, that persistence that you brought in. But can you talk about how you did overcome some of that? What were some of these conversations or strategies that you used to, to shift folks and probably didn't shift everyone overnight of course not overnight as i said it took three to four years the you know it's it's mostly a communication issue that you you need you need to create a network an internal network of people you know you are going to reach out first to those people that you feel can share your passion uh can share can share the and and are able to understand the, the long-term vision and so you start the networking, as I said, from, from, from the very top, from the owner. And then it took a lot, a lot of repeating the same explanation, repeating what I just explained to you, uh, you know, value creation, value sharing. It took me a year just to put this equation into the mind of everybody. We create value and then we share it. And, and that was a, a main, the main point of the strategy. Uh, I started... I started to create a newsletter, an internal newsletter uh, that I, I, I've, I started to write every two weeks, pushing the strategy, pushing the explanation on Cacao Trace. And I was sending this newsletter 
to the group executive committee to, to, to you know all kind of influence and people inside the organization and of course at first when you do these kind of things there is a rejection and I, I, I think it's normal because you are you are disturbing the status quo you are you know people are, are, are working their, their, their usual way and suddenly they have to deal with with a new strategy meaning more work more headaches more risk uh, LinkedIn was very, very helpful for me. I think LinkedIn is a is a fantastic, totally underestimated tool uh, still today. I mean, it's uh, it, LinkedIn can bring your message to all kinds of stakeholders that you have no idea reading you actually. Uh, today, I have people who are contacting me. I mean, how 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 these people know me? Yeah, every time it's okay. I'm I'm, I'm following you on LinkedIn. So, you know, internal, external uh, networking, influencing, newsletters. Uh, and of course, of course, demonstrating every time you have the opportunity, demonstrating to the organization that not only breaking the status quo and disrupting is going to be beneficial on the long term, but if we don't do it, we may disappear. And that's the other angle of disruption and innovation, you know. Think about think about Kodak. Where is Kodak today? They are nowhere to be seen because they rejected the digital innovation. And so that's what happened when the company does not pay attention to disruption. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Grisha, you've also talked about, so this persistence and bringing that message out with content, of course, meets resistance from those who don't want change. And I know we've had conversations about this, that you've talked about sometimes you feel like in the past you were maybe too aggressive or pushed. And a lot of people equate power with, with being forceful. How have your views kind of shifted or, or kind of a more nuanced view of how you employ power here? Because I know this was an issue that we've talked about in the past. Yeah, this is an issue in which you helped me a lot, by the way, when you were coaching, coaching me some years ago. I actually, I was born with a zero tolerance for conflict. And if you want to build power, if you want to be influential, if you want to be effective, efficient, one of the most important attributes you have to develop is the capacity to tolerate conflict. And I, I learned this the hard way because whenever you start navigating into an organization or any group, you know, if you start building power, you are going to disturb some people and they are, all, they are going to be unhappy and they are going to try to, be, to stand in your way. And sometimes they are going to create conflict because creating conflict intentionally is a way to, to build up power. I realized that actually it's more simple than it seems because I have this analogy saying, okay, what is a conflict? Uh, a conflict is a you know a, a tennis match 
in which you are hitting the ball, right? And the ball, the ball for me is the content, the ideas. So I'm not afraid of anyone to discuss, challenge my ideas and my content. And if I'm wrong with my content, I, I, I accept it. But the, 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 the conflict is not acceptable when the player hits you on the head with his racket in a tennis match. And that's not what happened. Tolerating conflict is probably one of the most important attributes to develop. And they should see it as a tennis match, hitting the ball, not the player. I love that. So it's about not getting personal. It's about keeping your focus kind of on the ball and the game. Exactly. And, and, and if you manage to put your mental into this not being personal, then it becomes, actually, it becomes fun. It becomes, it becomes great because it is an in intellectual process of defending your ideas. And the best way to improve your ideas is to have them challenged by as many people as possible because some of them are going to be right. So I, I love debates, you see, and I had a tendency to, to mix personal and, and, and content. And so I, I was hurt whenever I was in a conflict. I, I, was, I was moving out, moving away, you know, because it was scary for me. And when I started to realize that it was all about defending my ideas, then I became very strong. Don't, don't, don't touch my ideas unless you have something, uh, you know, relevant to say. And that helped me to be persistent and to, to, be, to become influential. And you've got some real zingers, Grisha. So I want to bring up a couple of these. You know, you've, we do talk about power and influence and how this has really helped you facilitate change in the organization, start to transform the industry. You've also been quoted as saying kind of overperformance is for losers. What did you mean by that? I believe that organizations don't have feeling. Organizations don't have a heart. They don't, they, you know, organizations have a target, which is creating profit. Some of them, they are moving to having higher purpose, which is great. But organizations have no feeling. So organizations will accept and be very happy if you give them your life and overperform forever. They love it, but they are not going to reward you about this because you are already rewarded with a salary package. So why, why, why would you get reward with more responsibilities and so on this is usually not going to happen as you wish it to happen. So once you understand this, what I say is that perform less, you know, work less, and develop your content, develop your strategic content, and bring a strategic content to the organization, which I think is not about overperforming. It is about going out of your role. Your role is to overperform, to sell, to deliver, whatever, all your KPIs. But nobody in an organization expects you to, to, to bring a disruptive strategy that is going to change the life of the organization. That's what I did with my, my adventure in Pirata's group. And that's probably, that probably gave me much more power than if I had delivered uh, outstanding sales, which I try to do anyway. So that's, that's the idea. Don't believe that by overperforming, you are going to be rewarded 
with the position you deserve. Because most likely, once you stop overperforming because you're getting tired, you're going to be replaced by another young guy or, or lady who is going to overperform better than you because he's, he or she are younger. And, and that's the rule of the game. You know, I have another advice that I give to the, to the participant of the power course. I said, please stop working. Please take breaks. Stop working for three hours. Go to the nearest coffee shop and develop your strategic thinking. You know, go out of the office. And some people are so surprised when I tell them that. And, and then they try it. And suddenly they come back after three hours and, you know, they are feeling better. They are feeling refreshed and they might have some great ideas for the organization. So it's also a great way to serve the organization, but a different way that is going to reward you with more influence. Yes. You mentioned the word empowering. And this is something that anyone who talks to members of your team bring up a lot. So when you're saying don't let the bad guys win as a message to your new employees, what, what, are you, what are you saying in that? What do you want to convey? So what I say, you know, at the beginning of introducing power to any participant who is new to the concept, everybody, most of the participants are, you know, pushing back. I don't like power. I don't want to be, I don't like politics. This is not me. This is not a game I want to play. And then I ask them, okay, do you want to let power to the bad guys? Because power for power is, is useless, right? I, again, you need content. But let's say you have content. Let's say you have a great content. You want to, you want to save the world, uh, you know, solve climate change and whatever. You have great content. So do you want this content to remain on, 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 the on your desk forever? Or do you want to take it out to the world? If you want to take it out to the world, it's very simple. You need power. Without power, nothing is going to happen. And so what I say is also counterintuitive. You know, some people, what I call the bad guys, they would be the people with, you know, bad content. Uh, people who want to create a war, people who want to, who don't care about destroying the environment, uh, who don't care about climate change, people who are saying that climate change does not exist. Some of these people are very outspoken and they have a lot of power. So what do we do when, when, when someone says, oh, I don't like politics? Okay, so you want to let power to the bad guys. You want to be inefficient. You accept that your own content, your own ethic is never going to see the light because you don't want to, to learn the rules of the game. That is actually a very stupid attitude if you have content. And, and how, as, as you're encouraging an employees to really be thinking about this, and we do see, right, like you said, there are folks out there who will use power simply as a force for very different ends. And, and how do you make sure that doesn't creep up in your own organizations? You know, this, the backstabbing, taking credit for something else that often gets rewarded in many places, particularly larger companies. What, what types of things do you do in your organization or with your team to make sure that power is being used for a productive force and, and not for such Machiavellian purposes, if we could use those words? Okay, so there's an element of risk there. Of course, you, don't, you cannot prevent 
the backstabbing or people getting you know rewarded for for ideas you brought by yourself and so on this will happen but this is part of the game i mean the benefits of empowering people around you is is fantastic because a, a group of people with power is simply stronger than than a single guy with power and that's that's what i'm trying to do but i would say the 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 umbrella of this dynamic of empowering people which which really is one of my main goal in life i don't like to see good people nice people kind people without power it it makes me upset because they don't deserve that i mean they are inside them they have something great and they cannot take it outside just because they 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 were not teach the rules of power so i like i love to empower people i think it's one of the duty of you know this passage on earth you have to empower as many people as possible in the right way and the cement the umbrella of all this as far as i'm concerned is passion and of course this is not passion is not something that you can take to any organization i mean there is a limit in size and you know at the end of the day kpis will will win the game uh, ebitda and pbt and all, all these uh, you know uh, soulless uh, uh, parameters but i feel that passion is i i i call i call it the power of passion i think passion is very strong and and you can break walls you can convince people just by showing what you stand for uh you know who are you what do you stand for what do you want rather than what do you do uh i always advise people who want to build up their presence on linkedin don't 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 tell people that you are ceo or cfo or whatever there are there are 1 million cfo on linkedin and you know you are no no different from from any of them so this is not interesting show the people what you stand for show who you are personally what are your passions and if you follow these these small tips you realize that the number of viewers on linkedin is increasing actually and your credibility is increasing because passion is usually seen as a sense of you know of 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 truthfulness i also want to point out right because you are you are from europe from belgium but you have been large part of your career in asia and you work with a lot of of leaders and executives in asia do you notice any differences in terms of how those in in asia are receiving power or taking it in or using it let's talk about the confucian countries you know confucius mm-hmm. respect for tradition respect for the elders respect for hierarchy so that was one of the thing i realized uh, you know in the uh, vietnam ecosystem uh, it's all about respect uh, and you you have to empower again you have to empower your team to speak out because they don't speak out easy by respect you know in my company the 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 nickname they have for me i found out because because they used my nickname as the wifi password and the nickname is grandfather and when i realized that i said oh my god they are calling me grandfather and that was 10 years ago by the way so <laughs> <laughs> and i'm not yet a grandfather but um you know i i i okay well, why you call me grandfather and they explained to me oh this is the highest sign of respect that we could think of 
you see? So that is, that is Confucius, that is Vietnam. And I remember that I organized session teaching my team how to speak out, telling them that speaking out was very important for the organization. So that's one of the things that I realized here. Another point, which is related mostly to Vietnam, I would say, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a professional life in Japan before Vietnam in the 1980s, and the position of women in Japan, at, especially at this time, was very, very low, very weak. I mean, women in, in the office would be there to serve tea or, you know, very minor roles. And one day, I moved from Japan, arrived in Vietnam, and I started to meet people and CEOs and managing directors of companies. And my God, they were all women. So you have something in this country that, that I really loved immediately at first sight. There is a very strong power of women in Vietnam. And that makes for, a, you know, an interesting ecosystem of balancing power because it's not the, it's not the, same, the same dynamics, actually. Any last point you want to make or a question I didn't ask, Grisha? I would say that all those discussions on power, they are mostly targeted at people working in organization, a little bit missing the entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs are dealing, because, because I'm halfway, you know, now I'm in the joint venture with a big organization, Correct. but I'm also, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. And entrepreneur needs power more than any, anybody else because they are alone, you know, in the field and they have, they have an idea, otherwise they would not be entrepreneur. They have an idea and they have to build up this idea into a business. So without power, forget it. And it is also very helpful from an entrepreneur angle to access all those tools and rules of power. Very, very helpful. Especially yeah. the dynamic of tolerating conflict, the dynamic, the power of strategic content. You know, in, if you work in an organization, you are always trying to get to the next hierarchy level, right? You are going to climb the ladder, which I feel is a mistake because you may decide to go down for some, you know, and get some positive outcome. But I think the very important thing that always have to be on an ascending path is knowledge acquisition. And knowledge acquisition is a daily work. And for an entrepreneur, this is the way to develop its content into a business, thanks to the power tools. So uh, that would be my, uh, my I, I don't hear often the discussion of power around entrepreneurship. Grisha, people can follow you. What is the best way to do that or how to connect to you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn, searching for my name, Grisha Safarian. There are not many of us on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only one with that, with that combination. And the nickname on LinkedIn is a Chocolate Man. You know, chocolate I could not man. find anything else. Chocolate <laughs> Man on LinkedIn. Very easy. Grisha Safarian. And uh, anyone who wants to contact me on the topics we discussed today, you know, these, these topics are, are my passion. Yeah. So I'm happy to talk. Yeah. Fantastic discussion, Grisha. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective. 
where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.